good to be here, thankful for this time, excited to see what you have to say. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in all ways and all things. Help us to learn and grow and then put this into practice in your name. Amen. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do verses 7 through 19 of Mark chapter 3. And I am really looking forward to this one tonight. I thoroughly enjoyed this one. We get a chance to talk about the 12 apostles, just their characters, their names, who they are. Boy, what a blessing it is. I love it when we're able to look at these individuals and really stop and remember these are real people with real struggles, real marriages, real things that we can relate to. And how did they go out and live a life on fire for Jesus Christ that we can then apply to us and say, okay, Lord, that's what we want to do too. So with that being said, we're going to start in verse 7. It says, But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. A lot of things going on here. Let's just set a little bit of a background. I'm a real big believer in understanding the details or in the passage to make sure you understand it. So first thing I see here is I see all these towns mentioned in verses 7 and 8. Jerusalem, Idumea, Tyra, Sidon, Jordan, etc. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you can kind of look at it. And it's interesting. They give some extremes. If you go Sidon, Sidon is pretty far to the north. And if you go to Idumea, which is also Edom, which is pretty far to the south, and you look at where they're at in the Sea of Galilee, you see that some people are traveling 100 plus miles to come see Jesus here. So what they're basically saying is this. Sidon, you're about 50 miles north. Uh, Edom, you're about 100 miles south. And you've got to remember, they're traveling on foot most likely, spending days trying to track down Jesus. And if they were dealing with the issues they were dealing with here, they're not in the best of health. It shows a desperation, a desperation for healing. It shows faith. It shows this desire to know and meet Jesus Christ. To be quite honest, I will say for me, it's convicting when I read things like that. Because God says, hey, James, why don't we pray about it? And I say, you know, not now. There's a lot going on. I need to check the weather for the third time today. You know, I just got to double check it here. These people were put in possibly 100 miles to come see Christ there. And it really just shows the perspective of the desperation they have to want to know and to be with Jesus Christ. Now, what else do we see here? You see this competition of trying to get to him, if you would, if I should say that. Verse 9, talking about trying to crush him, trying to touch him. And you see this repetition of the word. It's in verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9. The multitudes. Jesus had these huge extremes in ministry. There are times where the disciples completely abandoned him and left him. And then there are times like this, there were so many people, so many people, that he had to be worried about being crushed by the crowds in verse 9. And we have to have a boat to put me out in the water to make sure. And I think it's fascinating, once again, in verses 7, 8, and 9, you see this repetition of the word multitude. I'm just going to share something I've learned in ministry. What's the bigger danger? Now, use these words, and I'm going to come back to define these words later, so please don't jump on me right now. What's the bigger danger? Success or failure? Success or failure? I have been teaching uh, Bible studies now for coming up to, I lose track of time, 20, 23 years. So I've had services 
where almost nobody shows up. Nobody. Just like it's sometime. I remember one time I was teaching a Bible study in McClure, and it was my wife and I. And at that point, it was just us that showed up. And then one person kind of trickled in. And then another person kind of trickled in. And so we ended up having just like two or three people show up. And it was really hard. Now, if you remember McClure, there was this little gas station rewinding the clock now about 20, 23 years ago. There's this little gas station. So I was so worked up that no one showed up that I just made an excuse that I had to run to the gas station and get something. So I went to the gas station. I just started walking around. you got to remember, there's only like one or two aisles in the entire gas station. It's McClure. They probably thought I was casing the joint because I just kept making paths and circles. And I really don't think I ended up buying anything, to be honest with you. But I was just so worked up because I was a failure. No one showed up. So I prayed and I gave it over to the Lord. And I knew that when I got back, and I got back to that, that building there, there's going to be so many people here. Because I remember Jim telling the story one time when, when Harvest here in Hamler was just starting out. And so one time he said that there was no one that showed up and he went into the little side room and he just really prayed. And, and he went back and the room was just full of people. So I remember, so I did that, and I came back, and guess what? It was still the same three people. And I tell you to this day, I still remember each one of them was there, and it was a wonderful study. It was a success. Now, we've had services out here on Sundays where we have to set up extra chairs. The multitude showed up. Does that make it a success? Not necessarily. We have to define these words, success and failure. I use this example a lot. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, Jesus' ministry was a failure. You know, at the culminating event of his ministry that he had been telling everybody for years was coming, I'm going to die at the cross and then three days later rise again. If people really understood this, if they really got it, there would be like this tailgate party around that tomb like you've never seen. People would have been celebrating and saying, I can't wait to Sunday. I can't wait. What do you think it's going to be like? Jesus died, and no one was with him, really. And in fact, when he rose again, no one was there to celebrate it. From all intents and purposes, that's a failure, if you want to look at it from that perspective. But it was the greatest success the world has ever seen. Now, what's also success, then? This is something that I tell myself. I wrote this down. I feel the Lord gave this to me one time. My goal, this is a success. I write this down. My goal on a Sunday is to make sure God is glorified, the saints are equipped, and the gospel is preached, all through the teaching of God's word. If I do these things, then every single service will be a success. And that's what I remind myself. Those are the three things that need to happen. Was God glorified, were the saints equipped, and was the gospel presented? It's a success. If only one of you shows up here tonight, it's a success. Because we will glorify God, we will equip the saint, not the saints, we will equip the saint... And if you're already saved, I'll still give you the gospel. But we just got to be careful that we don't start judging success and failures based on numbers and things like that. I've seen so many people over the years where they were going to start this ministry and they just assumed multitudes would show up. Sometimes God wants you just to minister to one. Just one. Remember, the word sheep is both singular and plural at the same time. I am called to love the sheep. I don't know how many will show up. The sheep. I have a pastor friend that told me the story one time that uh, he was at his church and it was Super Bowl Sunday and it was a little bit of rough weather. He came and not a single person showed up. Not a single person. And he says, it's just amazing the mind battles that you have with that. So I see the multitudes here showing up for Jesus. And you would stop and you think, oh, this is such a successful ministry. Maybe. Maybe it's a lot of people that just want healed. 
Maybe it's a lot of people who just want to touch him. Remember, Jesus had quite the crowds following him for the free meals. If Jesus wanted to keep the big crowds coming, he would have kept feeding the 5,000 again and again and again. But Jesus wanted people to know him and to know him personally. And please just remember, what is successful is God glorified. Are the saints equipped? Is the gospel being presented? That is what matters. And let's never judge anything on numbers. Let's make sure it's all about souls and souls alone. One other thing I see here in verses 11 and 12. Jesus is not interested in any demonic references. He doesn't want them. You know, you think of this idea of having a reference, somebody that's going to vouch for you. He doesn't need the demons coming out and saying, you are the son of God. No, verse 12, he sternly warned them they should not make him known. No, don't need the demons proclaiming who Jesus is in no way whatsoever. So this all sets us up, though, to get to the second part here, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, to have power, to heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boandrus, that is, the sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. And that takes us into next week there, the idea of going into a house. But we're going to stop right here for a second. Go with me into Luke 6. Luke 6 gives us a little more background on this. Luke 6. Verse 12, please. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. These twelve guys, through their witness, through their testimony, changed the world. Changed the world. These twelve guys are absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Let's get a little bit of background here before we jump into this. First thing I see, and the reason I wanted you to go to Luke chapter 6 as well, is because Luke 6 adds a little element that you don't see in Mark's account. And that is in verse 12, that he continued all night in prayer to God. First thing you see with Jesus, that when he got ready to make this big decision, he got alone. Alone. Went up on the mountain to pray. We have lost that as a society. The idea of being alone just sometimes almost scares us. And I'm not saying that we have a fear of being by ourselves, it is the fear of missing out on something. If you're not connected to the social media, if you're not connected to what everybody is doing online, if you're not connected to the world, it's like you just feel like there's something big happening that you're missing. What a dangerous place to be. Jesus set the example of constantly getting away. I cannot stress to you enough. Get away. Shut your phone off for a while. Just pray. And when I say pray, sometimes it means praying alone. I see so many Christians that they pray alone for a little bit, but then they just want to talk to ten other believers and say, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? What does Jesus think? Now, if you've got a scriptural question that you really don't know, maybe there's a verse you don't understand, give God first dips. He's, he's the Holy Spirit. He wrote it. There is the gifts to be used in the body of Christ to encourage, to help with wisdom, guidance. And, and I understand that. And I have people contact me saying, hey, what do you think? Am I doing anything unbiblical here? Hey, let's look at what the scriptures say. But I can't stress to you enough, the example that Jesus set was this. 
alone on a mountain in prayer. It will bless you. Now, if you're not used to that, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. Number one, it's hard to find a place alone anymore. You got to. You got to put the time, the energy, the effort. That's why in the gospel accounts it talks about going to your prayer closet. And your prayer closet may be just getting up before everybody else. I joked a couple Sundays ago about when I do time in the morning of prayer, I need to make sure that the monitor's off so I don't hear the girls. And, I, and I'm not joking. I put the uh, shooting earmuff things over my ears so I can't hear anything. Because there's just constant noise. And I try to get up before everybody else because that's the closest I can get to being alone. You, your Bible, and the Holy Spirit, that's a pretty powerful trio right there. I just want to encourage you, learn from the example of Christ, alone on the mountain. And look at the next one here, all night in prayer to God. Now be careful with this. Seems to be we're in a season of Christianity where we like to pat ourselves on the back for how long we pray. Be careful that you don't become legalistic about it and careful that you don't become prideful about it. One of the best prayers in the Bible is where the, you had the rich man and the poor man, the Pharisee and the poor man going and giving the offering, and the poor man said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's one of the most powerful prayers you've ever heard. It's not very eloquent, it's not very long, but it's honest. So don't judge yourself on how long you pray. I run into believers every now and then that like to talk about, oh, I prayed for this long and that long, etc. Amen. I hope it was fruitful. But at the same time, don't go the other way and say, hey, I'm pretty sure I can get everything covered in about 30 seconds. I don't think you can. Especially if you have kids and grandkids and ministries and people that you're trying to be a witness to. You've heard me use this example before. I have a prayer journal, and every day it's something different. Monday, I pray for marriages. Tuesday, I pray for people that have ever mentioned a health concern. Wednesday, I pray for all the staff people out here and all the ministry leaders out here. Thursday, I pray for all the missionaries. Friday, I pray for my boys and my kids. Saturday, I get up and I pray for any type of spiritual battles I'm going to be in and my, my words would have wisdom, guidance, and direction. And Sunday morning, I get up and I always pray through Psalm 100 and Psalm 122 for the church, for the service, and also for Israel. And, and it, it keeps me focused. I'm not saying you have to do it that way, but it keeps me focused. So when somebody comes to me and says, hey, my marriage is struggling, guess what? You automatically go on Monday. <laughs> I know where I'm going to put you, so I remember to pray. If one of you comes up to me and says, hey, i got this little physical issue. Can you remember in prayer? Boom, you're going to be prayed for on Tuesday. You know, if you serve out here at church, I'm going to pray for you on Wednesday. And it helps keep a focus there to make sure everything is covered. But if you got something really big going on, I tell you, the example of Jesus, you may not need more sleep. You may need more prayer. And I think we've lost this a little bit. I don't know how many times I've heard these little sayings of, oh, it's just so busy right now. So busy that I don't even have time to do this or to do that. Okay, well, then you've got to cut a lot of stuff out. Because if you're so busy that it's hard to find time to be in the Word, it's hard to find time to pray, it's hard to find time to be part of the accountability of the body of Christ in church and worship, then you've got too many earthly things going on. Because if Jesus, who had more responsibilities on him on this earth than probably anybody else, if he could find time to spend all night in prayer, then we can find time to pray. I think back to Joshua at the beginning of Joshua 1 when he's taking over from Moses. And Joshua is truly in charge of millions of people. And Joshua 1 says, do not let this book of law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. 
There's time to put emphasis into it. And I'm telling you right now, if you're the person that's always talking about how busy you are and you don't have enough time, you've really got to stop and analyze what's important, what's not. And you've got to let go of the things that don't have any eternal significance, and you've got to focus on the eternal things and really stop and say, okay, Christ, you set the example. I want to put it into practice. But just remember, don't become legalistic about it. That's a dangerous area that you possibly could get into. Now, before we get into the disciples and the apostles, because I want to have some fun looking at these guys, any quick questions about anything here? A multitude's following him all night in prayer, getting alone to pray. I'm going to make sure we're all on the same page with that. We're good? Good. All right. Let's talk about these guys now. What's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? Please remember the way the system works here. Jesus had multitudes that followed him. Multitudes. Of the multitudes, we know he had at least 70 disciples that he would send out to do missions work. Of the 70 disciples, we know at least 12 of those became what are apostles. And we know of the 12 apostles that he had an inner group of Peter, John, and James, that his inner group of three that he took with him to do a lot of things. So just remember that. There were multitudes that followed him. Then you had the 70 disciples that had special missions. And then you also had the 12. And then you also had the inner three of Peter, John, and James that got to see special things like the transfiguration, the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. Interesting that those three were to do it. Those three had a really special ministry. James was the first one to die. John seems to be the last one to die. And Peter was the one that opened the gospel of salvation up to the Gentiles. So it's almost like Jesus saying, you three got to stay close to me. You have a lot going on that you don't know about. And I would also say this. Peter, James, and John were the troublemakers. And I can tell you this right now. With my boys. My boys. I can remember specifically with Layden, our fourth one. Layden spent a lot of time with me right on my hip. And it's not because I loved Layden more than the rest. Because I couldn't let Layden get out of my sight. And so then it was Tyrus I had to keep really close for a long time. So I see Peter, James, and John being close. And maybe it's because Jesus said, you know what, you other nine... I can trust you. Peter, James, and John, you're coming up with me on top of the mountain. (laughs) Because you need to come with me. Remember, I had a pastor one time say this in a lesson. I've never forgot it. He goes, I don't know why we call them the apostles. They really should be called the B-apostles. These were not the cream of the crop. These guys had some issues, which we're going to get into here in a little bit. But let's talk about what the word disciple means first. The word discipler means a follower. And follower, it means a, this idea of following a teacher. Now, this is not like when I went to college and I had a college professor that I learned from, but I really only saw him twice a week for a couple hours. That's not a disciple. He taught. Disciple, especially back in the New Testament, you would literally give up probably your life and follow this person around and not just talk about it, but you would actually go out and live it with them. These guys ate with Jesus slept with Jesus, hung around Jesus a lot. It was a completely different discipleship. When we offer discipleship out here at church, it's like, hey, discipleship, Tuesday, 7 o'clock, we'll see you once a week. What we've been trying to get into more over the last couple of years is this emphasis on, listen, Sunday mornings are great. Wednesday evenings are great. But you've got to remember, there's 168 hours in the week. And just because you show up for one hour on a Sunday or an hour on a Wednesday, hey, God bless you for doing it. There's a lot of other time to be discipled. And this idea of saying, let's really connect throughout the week. We got the technology. Let's call each other. Let's text each other. Let's email each other. Let's get together for prayer. Let's get together for devotions. Let's keep each other accountable. Let's do this. 
And a lot of times when we think of discipleship, we think of, hey, six weeks, one hour every week. I'd like you guys to really rethink what discipleship looks like. And I would like you to really think about the, the emphasis of that. That I'm saying, I really want to learn and grow together. And let's live this out together and live life. And if that's something that interests you, talk to us about it. Because there's a whole other level of doing this. And that's what we see here in the New Testament. This idea of following this teacher of Jesus and living it out. Now this should be new to us because just jump back to Mark chapter 1. Let's remind ourselves of this real quick. Mark 1, 16. And as he, meaning Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. They left their nets and followed. 19. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. When we taught on that a few weeks ago, we talked about how when it comes to following Jesus, there's relationships and people you need to leave behind, and sometimes there's a life you need to leave behind, occupations you need to leave behind, desires you need to leave behind, because they're going to truly go follow Jesus with everything. And this is not just a New Testament concept. You see this in the Old Testament as well. Go with me to 1 Kings 19, please. 1 Kings 19. The sacrifice of truly stopping and following is so deep, something we don't think about. 1 Kings 19. Jesus made this abundantly clear. He says, when you choose to follow me, he goes, count the costs. Are you really willing to give up everything for me? We have somewhat watered down what a relationship with Christ looks like. And you've heard us joke about this before. Just give Jesus 51%. Make him the biggest thing in your life. Christ says, I want it all. I want everything. I don't want to be the biggest section of your life. I am your life. I am the way, the truth, and life. And I just want to encourage you, not a have to, not a force to, not a push. That doesn't work. I want to encourage you to stop and say, okay, if we're called to go make disciples, that's what it says in Matthew 28, 19, 20. Go make disciples. If this is what we see in the Old Testament, if this is what we see in the New Testament, if we're called to be a disciple, am I doing that first off foremost with me and Christ? And number two, am I doing that with other people? Because we've really reached a point as a church in the world today to really stop and say, hey, you're my brother, you're my sister, because we see each other 40 minutes a week. That's if you make it and that's if I make it. I think there's a whole other level of being the body of Christ. And I think there's a whole other level of living it out together. And I think it's, to be quite honest, it's something that we're just not used to in the 21st century. But when I read the Bible, this is what I see, and I keep thinking, okay, Lord, why don't we just do this? Take a look here at 1 Kings 19. Look at 19. So he departed from there, this is Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. Now you got to know a little bit of background here. And I don't know why it's Elijah and Elisha. It's like God is purposely trying to confuse us for some reason here. But Elijah was the prophet at the time. And God had now called him to now have Elisha become a follower, a disciple, if you will. And by throwing the mantle on him, that shows that, hey, I want to train you for ministry. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please, let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? Elisha says, I want to say goodbye to everybody. Elisha says, Go back. You're not forced to do this. You don't have to give up and follow me. 
Jesus said something very similar later on here in Luke chapter 9, where he talked about this idea of all these people that had these excuses. Jesus, I'm going to follow you with everything. But first, first let me go see the field I bought. First let me say goodbye to the people at the house. First let me go bury my father. First let me do this. And Jesus says, listen, if you really want to follow me, you're going to follow me. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to make you. But you're going to follow me. I'm telling you right now, what I have seen being the pastor out here for 20 years is this is what happens. You're young, you're passionate about the Lord, and you want everything Jesus has in store. Now, I'm not saying any of these things are bad, so don't hear what I'm not saying. And you're going to just give it all up for Christ. And then you meet her. And she's cute, and she's a believer, and you get married, and what a blessing it is. Then all of a sudden, a lot of your energy, just like it says in 1 Corinthians 7, goes towards your spouse. And then what happens is, you start having kids. Now, let's rewind a little bit. So now it's just you and your wife, or you and your husband. And you stop and you say, well, now we're going to be this crazy married couple for Christ. Amen. But now there's a crazy married couple with a baby. And baby adds a lot of time. And then there's two babies. And three. And for some of you, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten babies. Those take up time. They do. And then you say, okay, fine. Nope, we're going to do this. Babies, marriage, crazy for Christ. And at this time, then you decide it's time to get a house. And then there's a remodel project. We can do this. We're going to be crazy for Christ with babies in the remodel project. And then you get the remodel project done. Now we're going to be crazy for Christ with babies. But now the babies are older and now they're sports. And our calendar is taken up with all these events. And every single evening there's something going on. And so we're going to be crazy for Christ when the kids are going to be able to drive themselves around. And what I've just seen over the years is after doing this for 15, 20 years, you're no longer crazy for Christ. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm just saying this is what happens. We, we get so committed to so many things in this world. And we get so committed to other things that we forget the primary thing are our souls saved. And listen, I battle this too. Not the remodel because I'm not handy. But I battle these things too. And we have seven kids. And it's like, okay, Lord, how are we going to make sure that we're always focused on you? And we have to stop and realize, let's just focus on the eternal things. If it's not eternal, we're not saying it's wrong, but we really just got to pray. Because what am I going to put on the idol of my life? If Christ is on the, is on the throne, and that's, that's my throne, then he's all that matters. But as soon as I let other things get on the throne, all of a sudden my eyes aren't focused on it. And I'm just asking you here tonight, if you really want to be crazy for Christ, this idea of sold out for him, there may be some things that you've got to let go of. And to show you how intense this is, 21. Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, boiled their flesh, using the oxen's equipment, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Wow. So you're out in the field. You're driving your brand new John Deere in your planter. It's April. You're getting the beans in. This guy shows up, throws a mantle on you, and says, follow you're like, can I say goodbye to everybody? And he says, go back again, for what have I done to you? And you say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow him. So you cover the tractor with diesel and set it on fire. <laughs> this is what Elisha's doing. Yoke of oxen, slaughtering them, and then he hands it out. That's the idea of a burnt offering. That is the idea of a burnt offering is I'm giving my life completely up to you. And you see he uses here, he uses the equipment for the wood. 
he, he's letting go of the past and moving forward. This is, this is them taking, dropping their nets. This is them leaving Zebedee. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say this is what it looks like for you because that, that would be wrong. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know. I don't know if that means God has called you to leave where you're working now. I don't know. Maybe God's called you to stay there and be a witness. I'm not going to say. It doesn't mean everybody's called into full-time ministry. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean everybody's called to Zimbabwe. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that you just need to be responsible to seek the Lord and say, Lord, am I willing to do this? Am I willing to kill the oxen? Am I willing to burn the yoke? Am I willing to leave the nets? And I'm willing to leave Zebedee the father and say, Lord, I'm totally, completely sold out to you. It's not a forced It's not a have to in any way whatsoever. Because there's absolutely nothing you can do to make God love you more than what he loves you right now. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to earn any type of grace, mercy, any of that. That's the beauty of what Jesus Christ did. But I'm telling you, though, he wants it all. And he's made that abundantly clear that he wants it all. And I think we just need to stop every now and then and stop and say, Lord, am I really loving you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? Not part of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Am I loving you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? And as we look at these 12 guys, you're going to see guys minus one that did this. Now, real quick, though, as we go on, we talked about what a disciple is. What's an apostle? An apostle means a delegate. It means a messenger. Many people define it as one who has been sent It seems like these guys had a special calling upon their lives, that they were called and sent for something special. And you see that. Take a look here at verse 14. He sent them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. There's a special calling upon these people. And it seems like this calling was backed up with signs and wonders. Because according to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, uh, Paul talks about the signs of an apostle being done and the wonders of this. These signs and wonders were never done for personal glory. They're done for God. It seems like a lot of times people today want to put the title apostle in front of their lives. And a lot of the apostles I see sure seem like they're doing it for their own glory. I don't think that's the way it was with Peter and Paul and these other guys. They were doing it for the glory of the Lord. So if I ever run into somebody who claims they're an apostle and it only looks like they're trying to elevate themselves, I'm very leery of that. Because these guys went out there and just loved the Lord passionately and many of them gave up their lives. Now, let's talk about them. Let's break them down here. Let's just go name by name. 16, Simon. One thing you'll learn here is Jesus likes to give nicknames. Simon. Also named Peter. Also named Caiaphas, which means rock. Simon was married. We forget this a lot. And it looks like, according to 1 Corinthians 9, he took his wife with him on a lot of missions trips. We know he talks about his mother-in-law here earlier in the book of Mark. He wrote 1 Peter. He wrote 2 Peter. He's the one that took the gospel to the Gentiles. The first half of the book of Acts is mostly about him. He's also the guy that denied Jesus three times. He was outspoken. He was fearful and fearless at the exact same time. Fascinating combo. Roman soldiers are surrounding Jesus to arrest him, and Peter's the one that says, I'll start cutting off ears. But then yet a few minutes later, when the servant girl is asking him who he is, he's scared to death of her. I can relate to that. I had a pastor friend one time say that Peter had a foot-shaped mouth. He always put his foot in his mouth. There was times where he didn't know what to say, and he still said stuff anyways. We can learn a lot from Peter. We're a lot like Peter. Next one here, we have James and we have John. We'll put them together here. They were brothers. They seemed to come from a wealthy family because their father Zebedee had servants. Um, We know that from Mark chapter 1. 
Jesus liked to call them a nickname too. Sons of thunder in verse 17. Why? Because there's an example later on in one of the Gospels where there was a city that kind of rejected the teaching of Jesus. And James and John had a great idea. He goes, let's call fire down from heaven on them. And you think that, we laugh at that. I, I, I joke a lot, and I shouldn't joke. I know a lot of Christians that want to bring back stoning. They really do. I know some Christians that it's a good thing that we can't call fire down from heaven. Because they'd be toasting people left and right at work, at home, etc. They would. So, James and John right here. Once again, brothers. Interesting to note, James was the first martyr. Beheaded by Herod in the book of Acts. Now, I'm not going to go into church tradition on a lot of these guys. Um, or I'm going to go by what the Bible says. Church tradition has a story for every single one of them. Where they went, how they died, we can't back it up with scripture. It's all hearsay. We don't know. We do know for a fact, though, that James was the first one to die beheaded in the book of Acts. And we also know for, it seems like a fact, John was the one that probably lived the longest. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Gospel of John, and the book of Revelation. I find that fascinating. If John was the one to live the longest, James and John, the first one to die and the last one to die. Brothers. Once again, Peter, James, and John, inner circle, inner three. These are the ones that the first to die, possibly the last to die, and the one that opened the door of salvation to many there. There's a reason why Jesus kept them close. After them, excuse me, we have Andrew. Andrew is Peter's brother. Andrew is actually the one that introduced Peter to Jesus Christ. That's pretty neat when you think about it. You think of all these amazing men that the Lord has used over the years. The Billy Grahams of this world, the Charles Spurgeons of this world. Have you ever read any of their stories how they got saved? Sometimes there's just a no-name guy that shared the gospel with them. And, and I tell you, and a quick little plug, and, I, and I'll throw it out there, let the spirit lead. You know, we are blessed with a lot of kids out here at church, which means that we need a lot of help in the back. If you feel the Lord stir in your heart to get involved with that, I encourage you to prayerfully consider it because you honestly may be being the Sunday school teacher for the next Billy Graham. Ingrain Jesus Christ in them at a young age. So Andrew doesn't have the much name recognition as Peter, but yet Andrew's the one that brought Peter to meet Jesus Christ. It's a pretty cool thing. And I bet you some of you here tonight, you got saved by your actual physical brother or sister as well too. It's pretty neat to see that happening. Next one, Philip. Philip liked to bring people to Jesus as well. He brought Nathaniel to Jesus. And Nathaniel is the next one, who's Bartholomew, who's also named Nathaniel too. They have different names in some of the different uh, gospel accounts there as well. After that, we have Matthew. Matthew is also known as Levi. He's the tax collector from Mark chapter 2 that we've already talked about here a few weeks ago. He's the one that when he got fought, saved and followed Jesus, he threw a party for all his friends. What a neat example. I met Jesus and I want all my unsaved friends to meet Jesus. After that, we have Thomas who's also known as the twin, which probably means that he had a twin. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap, because Thomas is known as what? Yeah, he's not doubting Thomas. He's honest Thomas. If you look at all the things that Thomas says in the Bible, he says the stuff that no one else wants to say. He's honest Thomas. And we always think that the only thing Thomas ever said in the Bible was, unless I see his hands, unless I see his side. He said other things in the Bible. If you remember correctly, when Lazarus died... And they waited a few days to make sure Lazarus was good and dead. Jesus said, it's time for us to go see him. And the other disciples said, Jesus, you're going to go back to the town that was trying to kill you? And so Jesus gives this great answer that none of the disciples followed because they weren't even paying attention. They were in their own little world. And so Jesus said, basically, we're going to go. Thomas is one that stood up and said, listen, if he's going to die and we're all going to die, let's all go die. That's honest Thomas. That's not doubting. 
That's honest. Thomas was the one, too, that you get the great verse. You know the verse, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You don't realize that the verse before, it's Thomas asking the question. He's asking for clarification, saying, it's you, Jesus? So I think Thomas gets a bad rap. Yep, he's the guy that said, unless I see the hands, unless I see the side, unless I see this. I think he was probably just saying what everybody else was thinking. I know that I'm on boards, and I know as a board leader, you want a Thomas on your board. They're just going to say it. Because sometimes those things need to be said. I've always liked Thomas. So you go from honest Thomas. Oh, real quick. If you're sitting here right now thinking, oh, that's what I am. I'm a Thomas. I'm the honest guy. Don't be jerk honest Thomas, okay? Just be loving, grace, kind words honest Thomas, okay? Just be careful about that. I've run into Christians that almost pride themselves. I'm just honest. Yeah, you're also rude about it. So just be kind and considerate honest Thomas as well too. Next one, James. Also known as the son of Alphaeus. Also known as James the Lesser. How would you like to go around being known as James the Lesser? Because you're just James. You don't have any recorded words in the Bible. You're just James the Lesser. You're not James that probably wrote the book of James. You're not James that was the first martyr. You're not James, the brother of Jesus. You're just James the Lesser, son of Alphaeus. We know your mom's name is Mary, and that's all we know about you. I'm just going to tell you right now, there's a lot of quiet people in the body of Christ, and God can still use them. So if you are a shy personality, if you're kind of a quiet personality, you can click with James the Lesser, and that's absolutely fine. Next thing you know, we have Thaddeus, who's also known as Jude and also known as Judas. Please don't get that confused with the bad Judas. Thaddeus, known as Jude and also Judas. Then we have Simon the Zealot. Zealot, this is an important word here. He was part of a political party. That's why he was called a zealot. They were part of the political party that wanted to take Rome off the back of Israel by force. They were willing to fight Rome. Fascinating that Jesus picked Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. This is stronger than putting a Republican and a Democrat Democrat together. This is the idea of Simon the zealot would probably have killed at one time for the nation of Israel. And now he's forced to work side by side with Matthew the tax collector of Rome. Please remember, body of Christ... There will be white collar and blue collar put together. Fascinating backgrounds, different ways of thinking, different ways of doing stuff. But you are brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's what makes you one. Satan wants to use your differences, your different way of doing things, your different of opinions. That's Simon, that's Matthew. Be careful about that. Be very, very careful about that. And lastly, we have Judas. And always Judas is the one who betrayed him. But the disciples didn't know this. Judas was the one that was in charge of the money. You respect the treasurer. You think treasurers are responsible. That's why you put him in charge of the money. Judas was the one in charge of the money. We know from reading all the gospel council, he was greedy. He was so greedy, he was willing to give up Jesus here for 30 pieces of silver. He was also the one that after he gave up Jesus, filled with such guilt, that he went and committed suicide as well. So here are these apostles. And let's just remind ourselves... They are liars, thieves, political extremists, skeptics, doubters. Some of them say too much. Some of them don't say anything at all. And almost every one of them hid in fear at one time or another. And those are the 12 people that Jesus chose to change the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I tell you guys, look in the mirror. (laughs) 
We are not the apostles, we are the apostles. And we are liars, thieves, political extremists, skeptics, doubters. We say too much, we don't say enough, and we all sometimes hide in fear. And Jesus says, I still want to use you. Last verse, Acts chapter 4, please. Acts chapter 4. What made these guys so amazing? Acts chapter 4. Really what made them so amazing was two things. We should probably back up. We don't have time. It's almost 8 o'clock. It was probably Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit was upon them. Let's not overlook that. But look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, you have Peter and John arrested. They're arrested for preaching in the name of Jesus, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish governing body. You have to remember that literally just a couple months before this, this same Sanhedrin put Jesus Christ to death. The Sanhedrin didn't want anything to do with the name of Jesus. But here's Peter and John, these fishermen, uneducated, untrained. Please remember that. If you're, if, I, I'm telling you right now, whatever excuse you have tonight on why you can't go deeper in Jesus Christ and impact the world is really just an excuse. If time would permit, whatever excuse you have, we could probably find a guy or gal in the Bible that tried to use that same excuse at one time. So just be careful with that. What changed these guys where they were full of the Spirit, and take a look at Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's all. They were with Jesus. That's a disciple. They followed Jesus around for three years, learned from him, saw how he acted, listened to him. I'm telling you guys, if you want to go out and change the world, hang around Jesus as much as you possibly can. Be in prayer, be in worship, be with other believers that are passionate and excited about the Lord. Check the group of people you choose to hang out with. I'm not saying don't hang out with non-believers. I don't mean that at all. Find the people that are excited about the Lord and spend time with them because you're going to have that rub off on you and say, that's the passion I want. Hang out with Jesus in the Word and worship and prayer. That's what those guys did. And the people will marvel because guess what? We are uneducated. We are untrained. We are nothing. But we hang out with Jesus. The next thing you know, we're changing the world. Man, I love it. Absolutely love it. So these 12 guys... What a mess they were. And I tell you, we're going to find so many references in the Gospels to their infighting, in-arguing, everything. And at the time where Jesus actually wanted them to be with him, they're falling asleep. They're hiding in fear behind locked doors. And these are the guys that the Lord still uses. I tell you, that's grace. God, I absolutely love it. That's grace. Hey, it's 8 o'clock, so we need to let you guys go. Because remember all those wonderful kids I asked you to pray about? Pretty soon those teachers are going to be bringing them up here and storming the castle. So, hey, let's stand and let's pray this into our lives. Lord, we don't want just mere words with this prayer. We want you. We want everything. We want to love you with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength. We're not looking, Lord, for some legalistic have to. We, we just want to love you more. We want to read more. We want to pray more. We want to worship more. We want to witness more. We just want to be with you more. Lord, raise up the disciples right now in this room that just want more. And then, Lord, let's do this together. 
and be crazy passionate about who you are. Whatever we need to die to, we die to. Whatever we need to let go of, we let go of. Whatever earthly responsibilities that we think is a responsibility is pulling us down and to say, Lord, is it for eternity? Then I want to focus in it. For you, for you and your glory alone, let the saints be equipped and let the gospel go forth. And thank you for that time of worship tonight and we glorify you in the name of Jesus, in your name, amen. Hey, remember those getting baptized on Sunday. Keep them in prayer, please. If you're interested in getting baptized, let me know. Have a good week and God bless, guys.